Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. We're now into the second week of what Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has called the latest phase in the Ukraine war, with Russian forces stepping up operations in Ukraine's eastern Donbass region. The week also saw NATO representatives gather in Germany to talk about the alliance's support for Ukraine. We're going to look today at what's happening on the front lines in Donbass and whether the danger of the war escalating into direct confrontation between NATO and Russia is growing. Russian forces struck targets across the country with missiles, while Moscow's main focus remained on the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. Ukrainian troops there are defending a wide battlefront, a day after the American secretaries of state and defense met with Ukraine's president in Kyiv. The Pentagon is vowing to move heaven and earth to arm Ukraine with heavy weapons fast to defeat Russia. Today, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin rallying military chiefs from more than 40 nations at Ramstein Air Base in Germany. They made plans to ramp up military aid as Ukrainian forces fight to hold back an all-out Russian assault in the east. So as the fighting rages in Donbass, Western defense chiefs gathered in Germany to talk about their backing for Ukraine. U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said this about America's role. We're going to push as hard as we can, as quickly as we can, to get them what they need. We want to see uh, Ukraine uh, remain a sovereign uh, country, a democratic country, able to protect its, uh, uh, its sovereign territory. Uh, we want to see Russia uh, uh, weakened uh, to the degree that it can't uh, do the kinds of things that uh, it has done uh, in, in invading Ukraine. Western leaders plan to send more advanced weapons to Ukraine to help it withstand Russia's latest offensive. In Moscow, the past week has seen ever harsher rhetoric about NATO. This was Russian President Vladimir Putin. If someone intends to intervene in what is happening from the outside and creates unacceptable strategic threats for us, then they should know that our response to oncoming strikes will be swift, lightning fast. We have all the tools for this, ones that no one can brag about. And we won't brag. We will use them if needed. And I want everyone to know this. 
all the decisions have been made in this regard. So what should we expect from the fighting in Donbass? And is the risk getting graver of Russia and NATO entangling, potentially even leading to nuclear war? Can Western leaders do anything to mitigate that danger, even as they send in more weapons? I'm very happy to welcome back on Olya Olika, Crisis Group's Europe Central Asia Director. As people will know from Olya's previous appearances on the podcast, there are a few better people to talk to about the war and its wider implications. Olya, welcome back on. Always a pleasure. So, Olya, maybe let's start then with the fighting in eastern Ukraine. Could you give us an update of what's happening? Well, it's been a bit of a slow start. Um and you know this raises interesting questions about whether it's intentionally a slow start or unintentionally. It took a while for the Russian forces to get uh, into position, and it's not clear that they're all in position yet. Uh, but we have seen some small Russian territorial gains. Um, and basically, there are two hypotheses on what the new Russian war plan is, right? One possibility is that what we're seeing is intentional. They're trying to take a little bit of territory at a time, kind of in a crawling offensive, which creates opportunity for the Ukrainians to try to cut supply lines, push back and put more forces you know, against the Russians in these places where they're doing this. Um, the other hypothesis is that they will eventually do more and try to push harder uh, to get more territory quickly. Um, clearly not what we're seeing right now. The other thing we're seeing is continuing attacks um, in central Ukraine and in western Ukraine on military facilities, on railroads, so supply lines, uh, lines of communication, uh, which are quite clearly an an effort to degrade the Ukrainian capacity to supply and um, replenish their forces. And so, you know, in essence, either a, a sort of bit by bit strategy where they're taking certain areas, consolidating control there before moving to the next, or what a sort of a wider offensive that we're just just seeing the beginnings of now. Right. And we're also seeing them trying to consolidate control in territory that they have taken uh, and it's not clear to me just how much resistance they are facing in those territories uh, and how easy or difficult that is. Just not um, not a lot of information coming out that, uh, you know, one can trust fully. And uh, obviously, as we've spoken about before, the a lot went wrong for the Russians in the early stages of the of the war. And the sort of underlying problem was that simply it seems that the Kremlin underestimated the scale uh, and the ferocity of, of Ukrainian resistance. But there were all also sort of flowing from that, these massive problems with logistics, the sort of different command structures, it seems, you had these long convoys sort of stuck on, on roads uh, where they could get picked off by Ukrainian artillery, Ukrainian anti-tank missiles. How have the Russians learned from that and adapted, do you think? They've narrowed their goals, right? So when the special military operation, as they call it, began, they said that what they were doing was they wanted to defend uh, the Russian-speaking population of Donbass, which had been, according to them, under attack by Ukraine for eight years. Uh, in order to do that, they were going to denazify and demilitarize Ukraine, was what they said, which meant they were going to change the Ukrainian government and, I guess, demilitarize it somehow um, by moving along multiple axes across all of Ukraine. As you said, that failed because the Ukrainians uh, did not, as expected, greet the Russians as liberators as they were doing that. So what we have now is more limited war aims, really indeed focused on uh, Donbass, eastern Ukraine, though the Russians will surely try to retain control 
of territory in the south, um, basically connecting Crimea to uh, Russia, um, which they were able to take control of uh, in the first phase of fighting. So they're focused on Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts, the regions that they said they were there to protect. Um, easier supply lines, right? They're fighting with Russia and then the uh, territories that have been controlled by forces Russia backed for the last eight years behind them. So easier to supply. Uh, if you've got more forces to move in, easier to move them in. Um, so you can kind of move forward without worrying as much about Ukrainian attacks on the rear. But, um, you know, there's also the question of how well can they control the territory as they capture it. Uh, and they have continued to have problems with logistics and bottlenecks with transport and with command and control, even though we do now have seemingly a much more unified command structure as well. And on the one hand, in principle, for all the reasons you say, the Donbass... Uh, should favour the Russian offensive. I mean, it's it's more open, from what I understand, more open terrain. So some of the tactics that the Ukrainians used of, of being able to sort of get up close and and then take out some of the you know the Russian tanks or the Russian Russian vehicles, you know that's going to be more difficult. You know, on the other hand, you've parts of the Ukrainian army that have been fighting the Russians and Russian-backed separatists for some time now, pretty well entrenched in parts of Donbass. How do you see this sort of balance of force shaping up? Um. We're hearing different stories about both advantages and disadvantages to both sides. The flatness of the terrain has some advantages for both parties in terms of maneuver, but the Russian artillery advantage, which they have over Ukraine, is um, presumably something that will benefit them uh, under these conditions. Um, we don't know how much attrition the Ukrainian forces have suffered, so we don't know exactly how much they can put into the fight and how much of what they're putting forward is regular army versus reservists and territorial defense forces, territorial defense forces being um, the civilians who have taken up arms. Now, some of those civilians are pretty capable, uh, but some aren't. Uh, so we don't know what that balance is. Um, Ukraine has the additional problem that its capacity to manufacture new weapons uh, is uh, deeply degraded by Russian attacks on its military industrial complex. Um, so, right, Ukrainian tank plants destroyed. Um, they're asking for support from Western countries with that. The Russians, in principle, can keep building tanks, but one of the things that we're seeing is that they too seem to be scraping the bottom of the barrel for weapons and have been from fairly early into this fight, which suggests that the corruption that everyone knew was present in Russia's military industrial complex uh, may actually have been even worse than expected. So how quickly they can ramp up, how effectively they can ramp up, um, also not clear. I mean, it takes a while to build a tank. And this, I mean, you mentioned the, the sort of pause, which lasted longer than I think many people anticipated as Russia pulled back its troops from around Kiev, focused on the east. There then was this sort of wait while people waited for what everyone assumed was coming, this Russian offensive. And you mentioned the pause, but I mean, did you, do you think that's partly explained by, what is it, morale, need to, the need to get the command structures in place, the need to supply forces? I mean, the Russian army is huge, though, so presumably they don't have the same issues with numbers of troops, or is that a problem as well? It's pretty clear they've put most of what they've got into Ukraine in terms of fighting forces. Um, so, you know, 
you've got ostensibly an 800,000 uh, person strong uh, army, but in practice, I mean, ev you know, even under the best of circumstances, armies have a lot of tail to the teeth. But it turns out the teeth were about the 200K that Russia put in the first place. That has been degraded. Uh, it's now being asked to do less, but you know, they pulled forces out of Abkhazia and South Ossetia in Georgia. Um, they, I mean, they've been pulling forces from all over the place. And that suggests to me that, no, they don't have a ton more people to put into this fight. Alolia, what's happening now in Mariupol, a city that's crucial to this land bridge you talked about between Crimea and areas controlled by Russia in Donbass? Many civilians are stuck. A lot of the city has been destroyed. UN's trying to get people out. Uh, Secretary General seems to have discussed this in his meeting this week with President Putin. Got Ukrainian forces still holed up in the in the steel mill there. What's happening there now? So ostensibly, right, Russia declared it um, under Russian control. No need to storm the Azovstal steel plant where the um, Azov. Uh, uh, National Guard unit members who were defending it were um, were basing out of, and there are also, uh, according to Ukrainians, about a thousand civilians uh, in its shelters. Uh, so the Russians decided not to storm it, but um, to back away. However, we still have continued shelling of the city and of the plant. There are about 100,000 people uh, in the city as a whole. Um, humanitarian corridors keep getting announced, and then it turns out that they're not real or people try to use them and face shelling. So, you know, this continues to be just a really tremendous humanitarian disaster. Uh, people who have not had, uh, have not been resupplied with food and water in a very long time. The Ukrainians were doing some supplies by helicopter uh, for a while, but then they faced trouble doing that. So really just a tremendously painful and difficult uh, situation. And so you just talked about Russia moderating its goals, so focusing on Donbass and capturing the areas uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, which, you know, that those are areas that are much bigger than the areas that were controlled by, have been controlled by separatists since 2014. Plus, the, as you say, the land bridge that comes up from Crimea to other Russian controlled areas. But there's also been talk now of potentially an offensive or Russian goals uh, also stretching further west uh, along the south to include Odessa, potentially then linking up to the breakaway region of Transnistria in Moldova. There was a Russian general who sort of floated that idea some days ago. How do you assess the feasibility, the likelihood of that being a, a goal of the Kremlin now? So look, the Russian war aims um, may have in the near term shifted to Donbass, but I don't think Russia has given up on its overall goal of having an obedient Ukraine one way or another. Uh, whether Moldova is part of that or not is an interesting question. I find it difficult to imagine that having just consolidated their military campaign, they're now going to defuse it by trying to take action somewhere else, particularly a place where there are currently at most 2,000 Russian troops. So, you know, I suppose they could imagine that uh, wouldn't be that hard, but given that they imagine that Ukraine wouldn't be that hard, and it was, um, you know, if I were a Russian decision maker, I would be hesitant to believe people who are telling me things were easy. And though it's not so difficult to see Russia stirring up sort of problems in Moldova, it's harder to see right now what an actual 
offensive would look like. I mean, as you say, there's fewer than 2,000 Russian troops in Transnistria. So it's sort of hard to see an offensive from Transnistria moving west, but perhaps even harder to see another assault on Odessa and presumably pretty entrenched anti-Russian sentiment in the city. I mean, they already gave up on Odessa once in this fight, right? They've been shelling it. And they have been attacking military targets in Odessa, which have had, um, which have killed some civilians as well. But, you know, that's what they've been doing in Odessa. So I think for now, at least, they are not planning to um, to attack it uh, wholesale. I mean, again, it's kind of, you've just consolidated. Why would you defuse? Again, there was also talk about potentially the Kremlin trying to get something that they can portray as a win at home in Russia by uh, May the 9th, so Victory Day in, in Russia. But that also seems increasingly out of sync with the realities of, of the battle. Right? It doesn't seem like Putin is going to have much he can sell by then. So the chance of that happening, that seems to also be less likely. I mean, it seems that Russia is now sort of digging in for something more protracted than that. Yeah, I was never actually that uh, big a fan of the May 9th hypothesis. Um, I think it's something pe- people kind of look for milestones, right? Dates that'll matter and something that can help shape the analysis. Um, but I don't think that's, you know, it's not going to drive the war aims under these conditions. If your plan is a crawling advance, you're not going to say, except that we're going to try to grab as much as we can before May 9th first. You know, for me, the question is, if they're planning something slow and steady, how long can they sustain something slow and steady? And how long can the Ukrainians sustain that? Again, we have this problem of whether they have enough personnel. We have this problem whether they have enough equipment. So I'm not convinced that a slow, steady war is sustainable by either country. I'm not saying 100% it's not. I mean, you can sort of imagine ways it would it would work out that way. But I think it poses uh, some pretty substantial challenges. We'll talk in a moment about you know, when perhaps both sides do want to pause in the fighting for whatever reason, even if it is just to regroup. We can talk in a moment about what that might actually look like. But before we do that, could we just talk a little bit about um, the evolving uh, Western policy? Just sort of this week, there's been this meeting now among NATO leaders uh, in Germany renewed determination it seems to send in weapons to ukraine it seems that the nature of some of the weapons is changing do you want to sort of talk a little bit about what's going on with western supplies to ukraine so what western countries have been doing is trying to on the one hand keep ukraine effectively in the fight particularly as Russian strikes have weakened its military industrial um, defense production capacity, Um, but also avoid the kind of escalation that would, you know, more clearly involve them and make it feel for Russia more like they're at war with NATO. Now, the Russians say we're really at war with NATO, but clearly they don't actually think they're at war with NATO. They know they're at war with a Ukraine that's getting a lot of backing from NATO. So kind of trying to keep it on that side of the line to avoid fundamentally a risk of nuclear war, which is pretty substantial if there's a war between Russia and NATO for reasons we've discussed here before. So what we've seen is the supplies get heavier and heavier until the point that we now have tanks um, that have been promised to Ukraine. This is partly because Ukraine needs this stuff, right? Um, And in order to stay in the fight, it needs armor. It needs that capacity. Uh, It's also because um, 
it, ne it needs new stuff. It needs Western stuff because, well, uh, Ukraine can't produce it. And the leftover Soviet uh, material that a lot of the Western states were providing has largely run out. So kind of there was this notion that, you know, as long as we're providing them things that look a lot like the things they were building themselves that they already had, it's, you know, it's okay. Uh, also, it doesn't require any additional training. Once you start providing entirely new systems, you have to train people on them. Now, you can train people in Poland, in Slovakia, in the United States even. Uh, Western countries have been training Ukrainian forces since long before even the 2014 phase of the war began. Um, but, you know, you're kind of doing more and more of that. Uh, and there is a question at what point Russia looks at this and thinks, yeah, we are effectively fighting NATO. It's only a matter of time before it's NATO strikes on Russian territory. And we're seeing Ukrainian strikes on Russian territory or things that look very much like that. Uh, so you are looking at an increased risk that the Russians start seeing this as a war between Russia and NATO. I think there's a recognition of these dangers on the part of Western countries, but as time goes on, there is also, on the one hand, I think more willingness to accept that risk and also a certain willingness to uh, dismiss that risk. Uh, you know, the Russians haven't done anything yet, so why would they do anything now, even as you put more and more in? The answer, of course, is just as Western states weren't quite sure what they would do, it turned out when Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, the Russians may not be quite sure of where their red lines are either. And it's a dangerous game. Because, as you say, Western policy, NATO leaders have tried to balance the need to support Ukraine, make sure Ukraine can keep at bay the Russians, hopefully then with the idea of getting to a better settlement that Kiev can live with. Western leaders, exactly as you say, have had to balance that with uh, the fact that they don't want to uh, run too grave a risk of escalation into a direct war between NATO and Russia. But do you think that that calculation is still the overriding calculation? Or you think now that there are people in Western capitals that believe that with the right amount of support, Ukraine can actually, quote unquote, win or, you know, capture back uh, more territory, perhaps even, you know, some of the territory that they've lost to separatists back in 2014, and that Western arms could lead to that sort of outcome? Look, there have always been those people making those arguments, uh, in some cases very loudly and publicly. I think, for the most part, uh, the desire to maintain that balance remains a guiding principle. Um, but, you know, that balance also includes trying to help the Ukrainians get as good a deal as they can get should they be forced to the negotiating table. And, you know... You don't want to be in the position of kicking yourself later for we could have done more, we could have, you know, which, you know, it's also a bit of a false uh, dichotomy because you're always going to be kicking yourself that you could have done more um, unless you actually do win, uh, which is unlikely to be frank. The Ukrainians have been playing defense up until now, and they're continuing to, uh, to be on the defensive side. We haven't seen them undertake massive offensive operations. I mean, it's possible they can do it. But um, it's a really difficult dynamic, and nobody wants to say anything that suggests they're not adequately supporting Ukraine. And I think that also helps kind of push people in an escalatory direction, even as 
they continue to see it as um, an imperative to avoid escalation. It was, uh, you know, Olaf Scholz, uh, the German chancellor, who's, I think, of, of Western leaders, been one of the more cautious. And actually, he's been, you know, come under a lot of criticism for it. I mean, he gave this interview in De Spiegel, the German newspaper, recently. And, you know, in that interview, it was really clear how much the danger of escalation into a war between NATO and Russia was sort of guiding his his thinking. I mean, he said something like, you know, this isn't an exact quote, but, you know, there's no kind of there's no textbook in which you can you can read about the point at which, you know, in essence, Russian responds, at which Russia perceives you as a war party. We're learning as we go. And as a result, it's really, really important that we consider each of our steps. And yet now, just in the last couple of days after the meeting this week, um, some of the weapons that Schultz was initially leaning against sending, he's now sending. So, I mean, it does seem that that's the sort of direction of travel. Yeah, I know. I think absolutely. There's a lot of peer pressure uh, between NATO and EU member states uh, to do more. Some some countries withstand it, but there is, a, on countries like Germany, particularly Germany has faced just so much criticism that its response is inadequate, that, you know, how dare you at the very start send body armor when other people are sending weapons. And for some reason, responding that the Ukrainians actually need an awful lot of body armor is not a satisfactory response to that question. The answer is to send more weapons. So I think it is also just bowing to that pressure. I have to admit that, you know, as, as in the early stages of the war, people were very nervous about what was going to happen. You know, in some ways, the dangers of an escalation seem more acute now than they did a few weeks ago. I mean, if you were to think through the way it might happen, I mean, we saw to some degree how Russia could uh, respond. This week, it decided to suspend its gas supplies to Poland and Bulgaria. Of course, that's one way. But there are other ways, right? I mean, presumably, uh, Russia could decide to take out convoys taking weapons, whether that's in West Ukraine or whether, you know, even further afield. And again, pressure then for NATO to, to respond. But I mean, what would something like this actually look like? And, and once it started, would there be ways to walk things back? So I'm pretty sure that the Russians understand that a strike on the territory of a NATO member state is the beginning of the real war with NATO, which presumably they don't want. And if you have a war between Russia and NATO, it is existential for Russia. Uh, either There is... No way, if you're Russian, you're not looking at this conflict and thinking what they are going to do is they are going to expect me to use nuclear weapons. So they're going to try to take out my capacity to use nuclear weapons and or retaliate with nuclear weapons. They are going to want to change my government because they keep saying that, uh, for one thing, but also because that is how we've seen NATO fight wars against other countries. Um, there will be a lot of attacks on my homeland, which uh, are meant to degrade my military capacity. And they're going to win because they are more militarily capable. So all I've got is these nuclear weapons and I better use them. So eventually you will do that. NATO, for its part, is going to try to ensure that any actions it takes are signaling that it's not escalatory, except in the sense that, you know, you're using force, but, you know, so what they will, they will try to make it proportional. So they, or even less, right? So even if Russia uses a nuclear weapon, NATO member states are likely to respond with conventional forces, but they will attack Russian territory. So, you know, it could be a buildup. And at any point in this buildup, anybody can decide, whoa, this is scary. Let's back away. Let's cut a deal. The question is, will they? 
it's uncharted territory, right? We haven't done this before. Uh, nobody knows what's going to happen. People have tried modeling it. The models tend to go fairly badly uh, in most cases, but you know how predictive that is, I can't tell you. And as you said earlier, I mean, the rhetoric in Moscow has been like this for some time, right? the, the, the idea that this is a war between Russia and NATO, but it, it does seem to have stepped up over the past few weeks. You've got people close to Putin using very tough language about NATO's goals, many Russian leaders framing the war as Russia versus NATO, sometimes even Russia fighting the whole world, which is a strange framing because much of the world is actually preferring to sit this out. But the idea that Russia is not just fighting Ukraine, you know, it's fighting for its survival against a belligerent NATO, a belligerent West. We heard up top Secretary of Defence Lloyd Austin talking about the goal being to weaken Russia. I mean, what, what do you make of that? How does that play into some of that rhetoric coming out of Russia? So look, weakening Russia militarily has clearly been the point from the start, right? Um, that's uh, sanctions that limit the access of the Russian military to Western parts and uh, Western technologies was always intended to uh, degrade Russia's capacity to build and rebuild its armed forces. I might point out that Russia has done far more to damage its capacity to build and rebuild its armed forces than any Western sanctions have done. Um, the army that has had so much difficulty in Ukraine is the army that is a product of years of ostensible military reform that was touted as very successful. Um, and I think in some ways it was successful, right? It just wasn't successful enough. It was successful in these kind of pockets of competence such that you had a force that if given limited objectives and could pick and choose the best of what it had, could attain those limited objectives. We saw that in Syria and we saw that in Ukraine in 2014 and 2015. Though perhaps you could argue that the early failures in Ukraine were less about the state of Russia's military and more about the political guidance of the war, right? I mean, had there been an accurate reading of the degree of resistance that the Russian army was going to encounter, then there would have been a different plan. Yeah, you wouldn't have done this. But we've also seen just, um, they sent conscripts in, right? They weren't, Russia has banned the use of conscripts in combat since 2008. Uh, they you know, the, the equipment that they were using, very old equipment, there clearly were shortages that were evident from the start. And that suggested that these reforms had not worked out very well. So in any case, so the, but kind of coming back to your question, um, it's, you know, in terms of de-escalation, it is not helpful rhetoric to say we want to reduce your capacity to rearm and to um, maintain a strong military. Um, in terms of, you know, to tell them something they don't know. Yeah, they know that. Um, in terms of, is this actually the best idea ever? A Russia that is very weak conventionally and uh, has nothing to lean on except its nuclear weapons may not be the safest Russia for the rest of the world. And you've what, you've just been in DC a few days ago. And I, I mean, the sense I get from US officials is that they're reasonably bullish about the Ukraine policy. They tend to think that the Biden team has been pretty good on Ukraine, which I think is probably fair, you know, keeping NATO together. He was the use of intelligence before the war, uh, treading quite a careful line on the risks we talked about, most importantly, between supporting Ukraine while avoiding you know, too high a risk of escalation with Russia. But is there now a, a sort of danger of overconfidence setting in, a sort of frog in boiling water type danger that as, as more weapons go in, 
as the rhetoric increases, you know, as people think that they can push the line further with Moscow, that the danger of something unintended happening, the danger of Russia responding, that that danger grows or is, is, is growing? Always. There's always a danger of overconfidence. I think there is a pretty realistic take on what is going on in Ukraine, in Washington. I think people are aware of battlefield dynamics of Ukraine as Ukraine. So, you know, I think I think there is an understanding of the limits and a desire to avoid escalation. But Washington is uh, subject to the same pressures as uh, European capitals. And, you know, that is going to be a factor. Um, you know, I challenge somebody to walk me through how a different policy would have worked better. And, you know, one of the things you hear from critics is that this is dangerous and it's going to lead us all to nuclear war. But, you know, the response to that is it hasn't yet. Uh, the flip side is we should have done more. We should have put in just the full load of weapons we're putting in now early and that Ukraine could have pushed back. But again, that would have been a tremendous escalation at that point in time. And, you know, that, that incurred substantial risks. So, you know, just because something worked out at point N plus four does not mean that it would have worked at point N. So I do think they've managed this fairly well. I think they are also aware of the difficulties ahead. I think there's a desire to look forward and think about what this means for the future of European security and global security and how this shakes out. And that's a tougher nut to crack. Um, kind of where are the opportunities, where are the risks, what should the United States be doing? And I think there's also more narrowly a bit of concern that if it all works out to some extent, uh, we've just poured an awful lot of weapons and other aid into Ukraine with very little accountability and transparency. Is there any way to get a handle on that? And so let's talk a little bit earlier about diplomacy and the talks that had been ongoing in Turkey apparently are now uh, ongoing, still ongoing, but I understand remotely between Russia and Ukraine. And this week, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, was in Moscow, met with President Putin, who said you know, reportedly that he still had some hope in talks, but what just a few days before had said that they weren't going anywhere. I mean, where do those talks uh, currently stand? So we've got talks that try to resolve humanitarian issues, set of prisoner exchanges. Uh, these are all useful things. The component of the talks that's supposed to be about a future settlement, um, you know, which from Russia's perspective is the Ukraine giving up Donbass and accepting Russian control of Crimea. Um, from the Ukrainian standpoint, presumably it's Russia getting out of Donbass. Uh, uh, or at least much of it. And these conversations about Ukrainian neutrality, from Ukraine's perspective, conversations about Western security guarantees that it's looking for in exchange for any deal it's going to sign. Yeah, th those are not moving. Um, and I don't think those are going to move until and unless there is something, we have a sense of the battlefield and how it's going to look. And that could mean victory for one side or the other, which puts uh, the losing side in the position of asking for talks and being willing to offer concessions. It could also mean uh, concern about the ability to sustain a long-term fight on both sides, in which case you have a somewhat more equal negotiation uh, in that both might be willing to offer some concessions. 
We'll come to what that might look like and what some of the dangers of that in a moment. But I mean, there, ha there had been some talk a few weeks ago that, that perhaps, you know, a settlement wasn't too far out of reach. I mean, along the lines of what you talked about, I mean, Russia holding on to Crimea, holding on to parts of Donbass, you know, exactly what unclear Ukrainian neutrality. Do you buy that idea that that wasn't too far out of reach a few weeks ago, but that seems to have changed now? Or you think that that was never close? I'm really skeptical, to be honest. I think both Moscow and Kiev um, have a lot of domestic political reasons to at least see how it goes on the battlefield. I think in Russia's case, because they worry about selling the settlement at home, and Kiev's case, um, because uh, selling the settlement at home would actually be hard. I mean, I guess, I guess in both cases, because they worry about it. Uh, in Kiev's case, uh, they have much more reason to worry, right? Russia has a very tightly controlled media at this point. Uh, in Ukraine, it's really hard to imagine any deal that won't be opposed by people who will say, oh, but you could have oh, but if we just held out, we would have won. So, you know, Zelensky is going to have a hard time selling any agreement. Uh, so I think um, any kind of concessions are really hard for him. So I think, you know, he wants to see what his military can do. And let's say that the fighting arrives at some sort of stalemate in, in Donbass. Front lines stay fairly static and both sides have problems keeping up the, the fight and and both want a, a pause. Presumably what's more likely than a, a settlement that resolves all the issues is that they, you know, they again, they sort of agree to some sort of truce and an agreement to, to disagree, in essence, to punt some of the most contentious issues, particularly Donbass, maybe even Ukrainian neutrality, just to sort of punt those for the future. Presumably that's what a truce would would look like. I mean, is there is there a danger in a truce like that, particularly for Ukraine, and that it just gives Russia control of the areas it's held, allows Russia to then regroup and presumably at some point again come back and try to take some more. So I think that's very much the Ukrainian concern about any such deal. Uh, from a more global security standpoint, anything that stops the fighting uh, stops at least the risk of escalation in the near term. In the long term, it may actually increase the risk of escalation, because if the fight restarts in, in months or years or whatever else, you will have the Western states back in Ukraine saying, we screwed it up in 2022. It wasn't decisive. It didn't create a peace. We should have backed Ukraine more. Uh, and they come in more willing to escalate from the beginning. Uh, with And you also have a Russia that, I'm sorry, is not going to rebuild its military in the period of months and years that I can foresee, given that it was unable to do this um, over the decades past. So it goes to nuclear weapons potentially earlier, uh, is more willing to entertain uh, that option if it runs into trouble. So, you know, kind of an incomplete deal kicks the risk down the road. Now, kicking the risk down the road is not a terrible thing because it gives people time to think about new ways to mitigate it uh, while not under the gun. So, you know, again, it's still a better outcome, but, you know, it's really hard to imagine a deal that is sustainable and decisive and that isn't kind of just waiting for the next crisis um, in Ukraine or elsewhere, but very likely in Ukraine. And what do you think a, a deal like that would mean for Russian domestic politics? Uh, as you say, I mean, the, the, the grip of Russian media is pretty tight I and mean, public opinion tends to follow that. But to what degree could Putin go back and sell this as, yeah, we saved the 
Russian speakers from the Nazis in Kiev. Aims accomplished. This was a big success. Uh, I mean, presumably stories about what happened on the battlefield. Lots of people whose family members have been killed. I mean, presumably these are all going to filter back at some point. I mean, you can only hide things so much. At some point, but then what are people going to do about it? Uh, Afghanistan didn't cause the collapse of the Soviet Union in the immediate term, though it might have contributed to it over time. Um, if there's a certain amount of unhappiness and frustration, there's a certain amount of unhappiness and frustration. But the people who were most critical of the government have either left or resigned themselves to being arrested a lot. Um, everybody else is going to only talk about their complaints quietly at the kitchen table with people they trust. I mean, I could be wrong on this, but I really don't see a lot of space for massive popular unrest over this in Russia that really threatens the government. Now, the Russian government sees that, I think, and that means we're going to see even more crackdowns and even less freedom. But I think we're going to see that under most possible evolutions of Russia uh, over the next few years. This government is very nervous about opposition and unrest and has put its money on repression as the tool to fight that. But presumably Putin's own reputation with even his close allies, but obviously their future is very wedded to his, but people around him, I mean, presumably his reputation has taken a hit because of this. You know, there are certainly people around Putin who are not happy with how this has gone. Uh, what exactly are they going to do about it? Uh, for the most part, they're sanctioned, so they're not going to go to the West. Putin's their only bet. So they're still kind of stuck with him. Um, and so far, right, they're position has been to suck it up and agree with what the government's saying and doing, even if privately they don't. We had some stirrings and murmurings and complaints early on, but that's largely died down. Could it come back? It could. Um, you know, could they reach a point of sufficient frustration that they try to convince Putin to step down or, you know, that you really do have a a shift in power at the next election, it's possible. But, you know, there's this talk of succession in Russia has been going on for a long time. And the, all that it seems to have done is convinced uh, Vladimir Putin that only he can save Russia. Uh, and the people around him seem unwilling to challenge that. And so, Olya, maybe uh, just one last question. And again, it sort of seems that we're you know, quite a dangerous moment. It does seem now as though Western policy is, you know, again, for sort of understandable reasons, need to uh, support Ukraine in holding the line against Russia's latest offensive. But it seems as though Western policy is now sort of set on providing Ukraine more weapons, heavier weaponry, you know, arms that potentially need training by NATO member states. I mean, if that is the policy, is there anything that they can do alongside that, whether it's rhetorically whether it's behind closed doors, with lines of communication to Moscow, just signaling. Is there anything that NATO Western leaders can do to lower the risks of escalation, even as they are putting in more weapons? Well, I mean, the rhetoric is certainly part of this. Um, I think trying to keep the assistance and the training and so forth off Ukrainian territory, certainly, and also subtle, right? Um, I shouldn't know where people are being trained. I shouldn't know who's being trained. Uh, it shouldn't be that easy to find that information. Um, 
you know, I think there is a real value to keeping some of this stuff as quiet as possible. Uh, I don't think that's been done up until now. I do think that's that's a mistake. The other thing that I think would be really smart to do, and we've written about this, is be clearer in communications to Russia. Um, Western countries surprised Russia and themselves with the scale of their response. Uh, maybe, maybe not, but maybe, had they been able to communicate that to Russia, it might have deterred Russia. Again, maybe, maybe not. But, you know, the challenge now is to communicate to Russia what risks it incurs with various escalatory moves it might make. So maybe Western states don't know the answer to that question. Again, maybe they can't predict what they're going to do. Um, it's not as good as being able to be very clear about what you're going to do. But, you know, kind of your second best option is to make clear that you don't know what you're going to do. Uh, and last time we didn't know what we were going to do, we did a whole lot more than we expected. So, you know, keep that in mind if you are considering um, moving into a neighboring country, if you're considering um, pressing too hard into Ukraine even, and certainly if you're considering using a weapon of mass destruction. Olya, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, thank you for having me once again. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of Crisis Group's work on Ukraine, its global ramifications, and importantly, on dozens of other crises worldwide. On our website, crisisgroup.org, you can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Sam Mendick, Kevin Murphy, Finn Johnson, and thanks, of course, to all our listeners. Please do get in touch. Podcast at crisisgroup.org if you have any questions or comments. If you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review and I very much hope you'll join us again next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.